Okay, I'll have you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and the page number is 1037, 1037. By the way, I've decided not to use this Bible myself anymore. I'm going to use my own Bible. It's a King James. It's not going to be so far away from what you're reading in the New King James, but it'll keep me from messing up. Uh, what happens is I read the words in the New King James, but my mind remembers the King James, and then I get all tripped up tripped up and I get all entangled the, the two versions together and I think I'll do better. Well, maybe I won't. But anyways, I'm going to try to do better <laughs> this evening. So you see what the title is? What a mess. That's what the title is. And I'd like to begin to ask by asking you a question. Have you noticed the mess that the world is in today? Is the world in a mess today? Oh, yeah. What do you suppose would happen if the economy would collapse worldwide all of a sudden? Would it be a mess? Do you know that there are people out there predicting that the economy is going to collapse altogether within a few months, at least within the next year? And these are people who apparently have all the credibility that you can ask for and they're making this prediction. How would you like that to happen within the next year? Ah, it would be terrible. Uh, you, you know, I really don't know what to think about it. I really, really don't know what to think about it. What would happen if the natural disasters would come upon us so quickly and so frequently that we couldn't possibly have enough money in America to deal with all the, with all the disasters and, and to cope with what's happening? What do you think would happen then? What do you think would happen if diseases would crop up, new diseases would crop up, to which there are no cures, at least foreseeable cures, and so many diseases are coming at us that way that we don't know how to deal with the whole thing? Do you think that's even possible? What would happen if China would decide to go against America militarily? Would that be nice? Oh, man. What would happen if Israel attacks, attacks Iran? And then expects America to back them up in the war that would get started in the Middle East. What would happen if global warming is just a political exaggeration or is not a political exaggeration? What happens if a madman pushes the nuclear button? One madman mad or another. What happens if in this world overpopulation comes to the place where there is no way anymore to feed everyone that lives on this globe? What happens if anarchy should arise in America. You know what an anarchy is? Yeah. That's the people rising up against the government and taking over. That's what happened during the French Revolution. You know what happened? All the poor people rose up. They got tired of religion and they got tired of the king and the queen and, and all the corruption that was up there, both in religion and in in the government. And they they, they, they wiped the slate clean of all these people. It was terrible. It was called the reign of terror. Do you know that it could happen here in America? Do you think any of these scenarios are out of the question? No. No. It's, it's amazing. What a mess we would have. Well, let me tell you, we have a mess now, don't we? We do have a mess now. Who's to blame for all this mess? <laughs> we are. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading just the other day. Uh, on the internet, and it's kind of a magazine on the internet, it's called Real Clear. And it's Real Clear Medical, Real Clear uh, Ministerial, Real Clear whatever, Real Clear. And, and I read in Real Clear Politics, President Obama was telling a, a crowd in Seattle that Republicans think is, it is best to stand on the sidelines so people will forget what a big mess they made. 
They're betting on amnesia, Obama said. They're betting on the idea that the electorate will forget who caused this mess in the first place. Well, do you think Republicans don't have their own spin on this thing as to who's to blame? Well, of course they do. And so one side is blaming the other side, and the other side is blaming this side, and it happens that way all the time. Who is to blame anyway? I had you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 10. This is page uh, 1037. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. And I want you to know that there's actually a solution here. If everyone in the world would accept for cash, the, the words we're going to read here, everything would be fantastic in this world. It would begin to heal the world. There's no doubt in my mind that the Lord by His Spirit would, would come down and would be able to work to every person in the world and we would find a solution to every problem in life. Do you know that God has a, pro, a solution to every problem in life? Oh, it's true. My God shall supply all your needs. You've got a problem. He has a solution. Do you know that He knew the problem you were going to have from eternity? He's been brooding over this from eternity. He knows. And He's had a solution for your problem that long. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. As far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't be anything else. I've been a Christian now for 37 years. Let me tell you what. I would never, I don't know where to go. One time, Jesus asked Peter, this is in John chapter 6, you understand, a group of people were following Jesus. He had 70 disciples at one point. And then he began to preach on the fact that he is the bread of life. And the people began to realize he's not thinking or talking about an earthly kingdom. He's actually talking about a spiritual kingdom. We're not interested in a spiritual kingdom. They turned their back on Jesus and walked away. Jesus came to Peter and said, Will you go also? You remember what Peter said? Where would I go? You see, he had been with Jesus just long enough to know that there was nothing better anywhere else in the whole universe. And that's how I'm beginning to feel. Where would I go? To what would I turn? If I turn my back on God, I may as well commit suicide. Because I have more security in God than I've ever had in my life. I have a God who takes care of me. I wish I had time to tell you stories. I could tell you stories till midnight, maybe midnight tomorrow. Yeah, we're in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking at verse 10 and 11, and I'm telling you that if we understood this and if we lived by it, wholesale, all the people did, what a difference it would make. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that it may, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Do you know what it means, wiles? What is that anyway? Tricks. That's right. That's what it means. The devil is tricky. Not only is he tricky, he's totally deceptive and he's far smarter than what we are and he's throwing curves at us all the time, all the time. And the Bible says, hey, you can know his tricks. That's what it says here, right? Now watch. Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against human beings but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here? All the trouble that is caused in this world is caused by devils. There's devils out there and they're working the angles, every angle, trying to cause more and more trouble. But what we think is, you did it. The devil comes to one in, uh, one person and whispers in her ear or in his ear, Do you know what Frank said? 
And then he goes to Frank and he whispers in his ear, Do you know what Sarah said? <laughs> you know? And then we look at each other as enemies and we fight like mad and it's the devil that's working both sides from the middle. He does that all the time and we need to know his tricks. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I forgot. By the way, Philippians is the very next book. You just go to the right in your Bible to the very next book. Chapter 2. We're looking at verse 3. This verse is, how should I say? It's my motto. That's how I want to live. And I tell you what, if we could manage just each one individual here, if each individual here could manage to live by this verse, you would be ready for heaven. Yes, there's no doubt about it. This is it. Philippians chapter 2, looking at verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife. No fighting. Don't fight among yourselves or vainglory. But watch now. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. What is it saying? You're to esteem everybody else better than yourself. What do you think would happen if everyone in the whole world would esteem everyone else better than themselves? If you treated everyone that way, if you looked up to everyone you meet, wouldn't that be something? What would it be like if our politicians did that? Well, they'd lose the campaign. (laughs) Well, if they all did it, then it would be a fair fight, I suppose. You know... It's amazing to me, and I think I've said this before one of the earlier nights, but it's amazing to me among politicians that they all claim to be born again. Do you know why they all claim to be born again? Because they want the Christian vote. That's all. That's the only reason. How can a man claim to be born again and then despise the man he's running against and and talk bad about him and talk down on him over and over again and, and call each other all kinds of names and nonsense what happens to that Christianity they profess to, to, to live? There is no Christianity there. It's amazing. It just turns my stomach. I would like to write a letter <laughs> to all of them. Yeah. What would happen if the Republicans esteemed the Democrats a little bit better? <laughs> and the Democrats esteemed the Republicans a little better to the point where they actually could work together instead of fighting each other all the time. What would happen if they cooperated in trying to solve our problems rather than trying to maintain their position and their, and their, and their, what do you call that? Their, their position, I guess, is all I can say. Their what? Their platform. Thank you, Trisha. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, in the verse, it doesn't say that everyone is better than we are. It doesn't say that at all. It says that's how we are to treat them. Is it possible to treat somebody that's not better than you as if they were better than you? Why not? (laughs) You want to be winsome? I'll tell you what, you can't winsome if you're not winsome. You can't. And the only way to be winsome is to treat everyone like they are more important than you are. What a blessing that would be. What a church that would be. Is your church like that? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Anyway, the question is often asked, if God is so loving, if God is so powerful, if God is so wise, why doesn't he do something about all the suffering in this world? Good question, isn't it? Uh, Well, we often have to answer a question like that. When I was about eight years old, I really don't know if I was eight or nine, maybe even ten. I just don't know. I was very young. Um, We used to go to my grandmother's house 
I don't know why I say my grandmother. I had a grandfather too. <laughs> we used to go to their house in any case. Every We used to go often, but on New Year's Day, we had a, a, a meal with every one of her children and grandchildren, and that was a huge, huge crowd. Every New Year's Day at lunchtime, we all had a huge meal together, and it was a wonderful party. Well, I was very young at this this particular time, and um, I don't know, my uncle was there, one of my uncles, a lot of uncles were there, but one of my uncle's daughter was very, very sick. It was his fourth daughter, well, it was his fourth child in any case, and she was very, very sick, and I remember she was very, very sick, and someone must have said to my uncle, well, you know, have faith in God, or something religious like that, and my uncle blew a fuse, and he went on a rant to tell everyone that he did not believe in God because there can't be any God in heaven. What kind of God will let a little innocent girl suffer like she's suffering? And on and on and on and on. And I was there, you know, I was very, very young. I really don't have any, didn't have any religious instruction, really. But in the depth of my heart, I knew that I could not meet his logic. I knew that I could not meet his logic. But there was something in my heart that said... God is good anyway. And even if I don't understand why this is happening, I know that there is an answer to this problem. I just don't happen to know the answer. Isn't that amazing that as young as I might have been, that I could actually reason that out that way? There was... Who is it that puts that in a person's heart? Even a little kid's heart. There's got to be a God in heaven. Because his his logic was unanswerable. But I still knew the opposite. Even though I had no spiritual instruction, I knew that God was good. And I knew that there was an answer to this problem and we didn't have the answer. Well, anyway, in the sanctuary model, uh, we don't find what I'm talking about addressed directly in any case. But in the sanctuary model, there's all kinds of things that are hidden in there. There are other dimensions that we don't see that are hinted at in that thing. Now, we don't, you know, we're very, we're, you know, you're far, sitting far from this thing here. But if you see this veil here, what do you see on the veil? Those of you who are close enough to see it, what do you see? There's angels. And there's angels on the inside of that veil also. And there's angels on the ceiling, because it had a roof, by the way. And there was angels everywhere in there. Now, I want you to notice that there's no angels outside of that structure. Do you know why? Because this is represents heaven. This is the most holy place in heaven. That I mean the holy place in heaven. That's the most holy place in heaven. And this represents outside. It's called the outer court. And it represents the work that Jesus did here on earth. The cross and his baptism, of course, and all of that. And so all the angels are within this confine here. Yeah. Turn with me to Exodus. Looking at Exodus chapter 36. And it's page 84. Exodus 36. Looking at verse 8, and then we're going to look at verse 35 in Exodus 36, page 84. And every wise-hearted man among them that wrought the work of the tabernacle made ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims. Cherubims, by the way, is another word for angels. And cherubims of cunning work made he them. And so God, when he had them make the sanctuary, had them make angels all over the curtains and all over the ceiling. That's to teach us something. 
that God actually has a heaven full of angels. He does. And these angels are mighty. One angel, you remember one time in the Old Testament, one angel came down and killed 180,000 men in one night. Now, that's pretty powerful, right? That's probably the skinniest angel in heaven too. Go to verse 35, I think. And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen with cherubims made he it of cunning work. Now, if you go into the most holy place, you'll find right there is the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, there are angels also. We can see that in Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 to 22. Exodus 25, verses, that's page 72, by the way. Verses 17 to 22. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub, by the way, cherubs are angels. They're the closest angels to God. They're his attend, uh, uh, how should I say, I was going to say, attending angels. That's right. Which verse was I at? Verse 19? Yeah. And make one cherub on the one end, the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces, uh, the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all these things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So do you get the picture here? Over there is the Mercy seat. It's a chest. And in the chest, there is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments we have transgressed. And God says, that's where I want to meet you. Now, this altar here is called the altar of incense. And it's actually an altar of prayer. And all our prayers rise with the righteousness of, with the incense of God's, Christ's righteousness. So that they can be acceptable to God. And this is a cross from the veil. It's probably a little closer to the veil than we've got it in the picture here. So that we're actually meeting right there in front of there. And God says, that's where I want to meet with you. I want to remind you that there are commandments in there that you have transgressed. I want to remind you that those commandments, if you kept them, would make you happy. That there's nothing else in this world that can make you happier than living by the way I tell you to live. Can you imagine there's a God in heaven who knows what is best for us. He tells us what is best for us. He tells us how to succeed. He tells us how to be healthy. He tells us how how to be happy. And we go about thinking, oh, I hate all those restrictions. I just want to do what I want to do. You know, how parents are. We don't want our kids to get hurt, and so we tell them they can't do certain things, and they, they have a conniption. They have a fit because they want to do what they want to do, and they don't understand. Do you know that we're just big children? Do you know? Well, some of us are big. <laughs> yeah. 
I wish we understood. But there's a God in heaven who wants us to meet with him right there and he wants us to, he wants to remind us always that these ten commandments are for our good. They'll do us good. But we've broken them. And because we've broken them, of course, we're lost. And so they, he put a lid on it and he calls it the mercy seat, which is indicative of the mercy that God has in dying for us at the cross of, of Calvary. And on top of the mercy seat are two angels, attending cherubs, powerful angels. The angel Gabriel is one of them who took the place of Lucifer, who used to be an attending cherub at one point. Yeah, powerful, those angels. And those angels, we're told in the book of Hebrews, are there to help their ministering angels, their ministering spirits, it says there, to help the people of God down here in this world. Let me tell you, when you give your heart to God, you've got power on your side. That's not saying nothing bad will ever happen to you, but I'll tell you what, whatever the devil throws at you, God will be there to catch it and to turn it to your advantage. This is my testimony. This is what God has done for you, for me. Now, one day, maybe I'll have the opportunity to tell you all about it. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Lisa doesn't have that one to show on the screen, but you can turn turn to chapter 4. And the reason I had done it originally that way is because chapter 4 and chapter 5 are really should be just one chapter. John the Revelator, John the Prophet, is brought up in spirit into heaven. He's into heaven, and then when he gets into heaven, there's a door opened for him. He's already in heaven, so the door is opened into something else, which happens to be the sanctuary. So the door is open, and he walks through, and he walks in through a judgment scene. So if you go to to Revelation chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. After this... I looked and behold, a door was open in heaven. He was already in heaven, so it's a door into something else. He's already in heaven. He, another door is open and he walks in. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up here, come hither, come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne." And we have a judgment scene. And we'll go now to chapter 5. Remember, this should be the same chapter. We're in chapter 5, looking at verses 11 and 13. And what I'm trying to do here is to impress you with the number of angels that exist up there. I'll tell you what. I wonder how many angels exist up there. I read somewhere that God is replenishing the angels that fell out of heaven. You know, that, that fell. Lucifer took one-third of the angels. We're going to read that in a few minutes. And God is is waiting for a specific number of people to be saved that he could bring to heaven so that he can make up the number that he lost, which was originally there. Well, how many people do you think will be saved? I mean, I assume it's a big number. I sure hope it is. You know, We're in, um, we're in Revelation chapter 5. We're looking at verse 11 through 13. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them 
heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Do you know that that's a song? Do you know that they're singing this? Do you know that this is called the language of heaven? Do you know that if you turn in your Bibles and every time or, or search the whole Bible through to see what they say, what people in heaven say, that it's always thank you, thank you, thank you, glory, honor, majesty, belong unto, and, and holy, holy, holy. It's always I, praises and praises and praises. Do you know that if we want to go to heaven, we better learn the language down here below? Is the Lamb worthy of our praise? Well, we wouldn't get there if it wasn't for the Lamb. And it wouldn't be the Lamb if the Father hadn't let Him come. Is God good or is He bad? I wonder why there's so many people that really don't want to hear that there's a God in heaven. Or that look at Him as if He is a cruel creature. It's amazing. But there's no cruelty at all. As a matter of fact, our God is a wonderful God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be in heaven? Wouldn't it be a safe place to be, do you think? Well, friends, where do you think the trouble started? In heaven. Where do you think the first committed, the first sin was committed? In heaven. And sin spread havoc all over this world after that. So the question is, why didn't God do something about it right from the very inception? Does that make sense to you? There was a man in Texas. He was a linesman, I guess, something similar to that. Anyways, he was in a basket on a long boom and he was working on the electrical poles up there, way up in the air, and he was struck by lightning. And the lightning kicked him right out of the bucket and he fell on the ground and obviously he was terribly hurt at that point and he ended up in the hospital for months. Well, when that was all over, he decided that he would, of course, apply to his insurance um, so that they could pay the medical bills. But they said, well, that's not our fault that, you know, we didn't do that. It's an act of God. And so then he went and he went to court and he sued the insurance company and the court agreed with the insurance company. Well, then if it's an act of God, he decided that he would sue God. And there were about 55 churches in that city. And so he filed a suit against all the churches of that city. Well, one of the pastors of the church decided that they would write an article in the newspaper. And in the article he wrote, that's not an act of God, that's an act of the devil. Well, what do you think? Well, it's true. It's an act of the devil. But do you know that God is sovereign? Do you know what that means, that God is sovereign? It means that God takes the responsibility for what His children do. I mean, if you had a 10-year-old boy... Are you 10 years old? Oh, you're older than 10 years old. Yeah. Suppose, well, even a 13-year-old boy could do this. Supposing you had a 13-year-old boy who took a stone and broke the windshield in the, in the car next door on your neighbors. Who are they going to come for? Are they going to come for the boy or for the father? Well, for the father... Why do you think? Because he's responsible for his family. And do you know that God is the very same? It's true that it's the devil that caused all that problem, but God is sovereign and he accepts the responsibility for everyone that he's created in his universe. Isn't that amazing? You can see that in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, this is page 645. 
Isaiah 45, 645 is the number, or the page number, 645. And we're looking at verses 5 to 7. God is uh, revealing Himself here. Verses 5 to 7. I am the Lord, He says, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. There is only one God. I girded you, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no other God. He's em- emphasizing that here. I form the light, and I create darkness. I make peace, and I create evil. Now, yours doesn't say evil, your Bible, but this is the King James here, and it says, I make peace, and I created evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Did God create evil? Do you see what he's doing here? God didn't create evil, but God is accepting the responsibility for evil existing because He created beings with the power to choose. And He knew that at a certain point in time, these beings would exercise their power of choice and might just turn against Him. And He let it happen, of course. Did God create Lucifer to be evil? No, no. God create Lucifer to do evil? No. But um, look at Ezekiel 28 now. This is 757. Ezekiel chapter 28. We're looking at verses 12 to 15 in Ezekiel chapter 28. By the way, this is talking about Lucifer. And it's couched in, in symbolic language. But this is whom it's talking about. And you can prove that by looking at the text and the things that are said about the individual he's talking about here. So, we're in, we're in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 15. Son of man, take up a lamentation. Am I in the right place? Yes. Summon of man, take up the lamentation against the king of Tyrus. The king of Tyrus is a symbol for Lucifer here. Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyrus, and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden. Now, not too many people in this world have been in Eden, but Satan has been there. The garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, and the workmanship of thy tabrets. And of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. God created him. Thou art the anointed cherub. He was one of the covering cherubs there that cover it. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou, was, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now watch. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in thee. Now where did the iniquity come from? Did you know that, this is an illustration now, did you know that it was God who created grapes? I guess I don't have to ask that question. Of course, God created grapes. Aren't grapes good for us? Yeah, yeah. Why did God create grapes? Well, the Bible says why God created grapes. If you go to Isaiah 65, go to Isaiah 65. And we're looking at verse 8, and this is page 662. 662. This is Isaiah 65, 
And we're looking at verse 8. And, in, and the Bible is going to tell us why God created grapes. And God, the Bible tells us all kinds of stuff, doesn't it? You would think that's not important, but I want you to see how important it is because I can use it this evening as an illustration. Verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, don't destroy the grapes, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them. So God created grapes to be a blessing. And I'll tell you what, if your blood count, if your hemoglobin ever goes down, get yourself some grape juice and start drinking it, and you can raise your hemoglobin count up by it. There's richness in the grapes. Now, what have men done with grapes? Well, they've squeezed them. They've added sugar to them. They've fermented them. They've added chemicals. They've made alcohol. And they have, by all this process, destroyed the blessing that is in the grape and have made a curse out of the blessing that God has intended. Yeah. And do you know what happens with alcohols? Have you ever had uh, the experience of living with an alcoholic or living with someone who has no control over what he drinks? And there's violence in the home and there's... All kinds of things that can go wrong there. Accidents are caused. As a matter of fact, most accidents on the road have a degree of alcohol involvement in there. Rapes and murders and disease and poverty. Who created the grapes? Did he create the grapes to do that? No. Did he create Lucifer to be evil? No, he created Lucifer as a good angel and the good angel made a devil of himself. The good angel had the power to choose and one day he decided he'd had enough of being good and now he was going to want to take God's place. Isn't that amazing? There was war in heaven. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9. It's amazing, but you wouldn't think there could be war in heaven, but there was war in heaven. Revelation 12, 7-9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. There you are. And what happened? How many of the angels got thrown out of heaven? I think you can see it in verses 3 and 4. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, that's the devil, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. By the way, stars are a symbol in the Bible of angels or of ministers. So the third part of the stars of heaven, the angels of heaven, were cast. he cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was rather ready to be delivered. There you are. Yeah. A third part of the angels followed Lucifer. After the war, they were thrown out. Go to Matthew 13, page 862 in Matthew 13. Looking at verse 24 to 28, Matthew 13, 862. Another parable put he forth, that's Jesus, saying to them, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares or weeds 
among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the weeds also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in your field? Where did the wheat, the weeds come from? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Will thou then that we go and gather up the weeds? And do you know what Jesus said? Don't do it. Lest you uproot the wheat with the weeds. Do you know that there's a lesson here? You're going to ask yourself, if God created Lucifer, and Lucifer made a devil of himself, then it was up to God to destroy Lucifer. I mean, wouldn't that make sense to you and start all over again? Why allow all this wickedness? But he answers the question right here in the parable of the tares and the weeds. I mean, of the wheat and the weeds. And he says, no. Because if I start pulling out weeds, I might pull up the wheat with it. I'm going to allow the thing to develop. We have that, um, it goes on to more explanations in verses 36 and 39 here in the same chapter. Verse 36 to 39. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Declare unto us the parable that is explained for us, the parable of the tares or the weeds in the field. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of God. So God is the one that sows the good seed. The Son of Man is. The field is the world, so they're sown here. The good seed are the children of the kingdom of God, but the tares or the weeds are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Yeah. It's coming. God is going to sort out the wheat from the weeds in the field. He knows how to do this. He's going to send the angels to do it. But he's only going to do it when we are ready. Why did Lucifer turn against God? If you go to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, we're going to read. This is 616. 616. Isaiah 14. We're looking at verses 12 and 14. Good question asked right there in verse 12. Isaiah 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground that is to the earth, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's all the angels. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. Now, why in the world do you think Lucifer would not be satisfied with what God had given him? He was the highest angel. He was the greatest angel. He was the brightest angel. He was the strongest angel. He had absolutely everything. He was second to none except for God. Triune, the triune God, the, 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 the Trinity, God himself. He wasn't satisfied with that. Can you imagine? He wanted to have God's throne. If you had been God, what would you have done? Yeah, take him out. <laughs> yeah, but you see, God couldn't do that. 
God couldn't do that. Imagine one day the angels come to choir and Lucifer is the choir leader and they're waiting around, they're sitting around and Lucifer is not there and one of the angels says, hey, where in the world is Lucifer? How come he's late? And one of the angels says, well, haven't you heard? Heard what? Well, God killed him. Killed him? (laughs) Yeah, he disobeyed and God took him out. And so the angels go like, whoa, is that right? We'd better watch our P's and Q's because if we do something wrong, God will kill us. And so when they had been worshipping God out of love, all of a sudden now they're going to worship God out of fear. And God says, no, that's not good. I can't have that in my universe. And so what God is doing is allowing Lucifer to, to, to reveal what his government would be like, what he himself is like, what he would do if he was in charge of the universe. He is allowing... Lucifer to make that demonstration. Are you happy with the demonstration that Lucifer is making? Are you happy with all the suffering and the disease and the dying and the wars and the pain and all the rest that goes with the nonsense that has come with sin? No, I'm not either. But let me tell you something. It won't last. It won't be forever. Now, you and I might think it's forever. The problem with you and I is that we look back 6,000 years and we say, it's been such a long time. Well, listen, you haven't been here 6,000 years. And even if you're 80 years old to you today, I assume being 80 years old, you still think it was a pretty short time on earth. Don't you think? I'm 65 and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I just started. How can I be 65? When I was young, I thought 65 was really, really, really old. <laughs> well, kind of is. <laughs> yeah. Life is so short. And if it should go on another hundred years, and believe me, I don't think it will. As a matter of fact, I think we've come to the end. But it may be that I will die before the end. Do you know what? The minute I die, the next thing I'll see is Jesus. I will be resurrected there may be some time past, but I won't feel the time. Will I? No, I won't feel the time. Listen, God is allowing a demonstration to go on. And we might think it's a long time. It's not a long time. You can't live a long time. <laughs> You're destined to live a short time. No matter how you look at it, for you and me, it's a short time. So don't get impatient about this thing. The end is coming for all of us. If you go to Ezekiel 28, we can see the end of Lucifer. I mean Satan. Lucifer, uh, I mean Ezekiel 28, 757. 757, Ezekiel 28. We're looking at verses 18 and 19. And we can see here the end of Lucifer. Now I read the, the way the New King James read and I don't, reads and I don't like it. So listen to the King James Version. And God is speaking to Lucifer, to Satan. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, I will bring forth fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and it will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. I love that reading, because it's true. There's coming a time that a fire will arrive right from the midst of him, it says. And he will burn from the inside out. (laughs) Yeah. 
and he is going to be ashes on the ground. And and the creatures that have been created that are not lost are going to look down and be astonished at the power that this individual had, and he has no more power. No more power. It's all over for him. And when this happens, when the whole universe is satisfied that God is good, that evil is bad, that God's way is best, when everyone of the universe has made a final decision, some for God and some for the enemy, when all that has happened, the end shall come. Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. Wonderful promise. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. All gone. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. How do we know? whether we'll be part of the heavenly throng, whether we're going to be found in heaven. You can know. As a matter of fact, there are several places in the Bible that says we can know. A boy, a shepherd boy, was herding a bunch of sheep on the side of a hill. On the other, through the valley, on the other side of the hill was his friend. And he was herding a bunch of sheep there. And they used to call to each other. By the way, I used to live in a, in a country called Lesotho. It's a little bit of a landlocked, it's a landlocked country in South Africa. It's called the Kingdom in the Sky because it's built on mountains. And in Lesotho, all the boys are shepherds. They're called herd boys there. And from the time they're five years old, they're way up there in the hills with their goats and their sheep and their horses and whatever else they have, all kinds of animals up there. And they call to each other from mountain to mountain. It's amazing the voice boxes that they've developed over there. It's really amazing. Kind of annoying sometimes. Because there's so much noise. So much yelling from one mountain to the other. Yeah. Well, anyhow, that's how it is. I suppose in the Alps that's how they develop yodeling. I have no idea. But uh, that's how it was in Lesotho. And so we have a shepherd boy on this hill. We have a shepherd boy on, on that hill with all of their sheep. But there arose a mighty storm, a terrible storm in the valley and on those mountains. And so the two boys found shelter under an overhang of a mountain there where they could be safe. And they waited out the storm. Well, when the storm was over, all the sheep were mixed. And try as they may to separate the sheep, there was no separating them because the sheep just won't sit still. You understand? And so they finally got frustrated with that thing. And they decided, oh, phooey, I'm going home. And so one boy took a trail towards home and the other boy took another trail towards home. And what do you think happened to the sheep? Yeah, the sheep followed the right boy. The sheep knew who their masters were. The sheep knew who the, their shepherd was. Do you know who your shepherd is? Whose voice do you hear? John 10, 27. That's 950. Page 950. John 10:27 Verse 27 My sheep Jesus is speaking My sheep hear my voice Do you know that means the word of God 
My sheep hear my words. You know, we speak words with a voice, right? That's what he's saying. You have the word of God in your hands. You want to know your way to the to heaven? Jesus said, I am the way. No man can get to the Father but by me. I'll tell you how to get there. Listen to my voice. Listen to my words. Now someone might say, listen, I know right from wrong. Do you think you know right from wrong? Someone might say, well, you know, I go to a good church and my pastor is my guide. Really? I've been listening to some DVDs lately and there's a big push by Disney and all these wonderful little movies and and animation things. And the big push in Disney is to tell young children, oh, is it restrictive at home? Follow your dream. Really? Yeah. And if you're old enough to know who Frank Sinatra was, what would he say? I did it my way. Yeah. And if you come from my family, you would hear them say, if it was good enough for our grandparents, it was good enough for our parents, then it's good enough for me. Well, let me tell you something. It's not good enough for God. God has another plan. He really, really does. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, He says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. In Jeremiah 10.23, He says, It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. In Proverbs 3, verse 5, Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Friends, You know, I can't be disrespectful for that which you are doing. I don't know what it is you're doing, by the way. You know? But I can say this. There is a God in heaven and we may not always be doing the right thing as right as we think it ought to be. We have decisions to make. There is a God in heaven who is willing to guide us and it's a risk to ask Him to do it. But when we ask Him, He will do it. And we can't go around blaming God for all the trouble that's in this world. The trouble will end. He will fix it. He will fix it. In the end, we're going to be on one side or we're going to be on the other. Whose responsibility do you think it is? Where you end up? Uh huh. Be careful. Walk with God. Walk with God. Ask Him to guide you and He will do it. Are you ready to make a decision? Any kind of decision? Are you willing to follow God wherever He asks you to follow? I'm not asking you to follow me. And I'm not asking you to do what I say. That would be one human being following another. God uses human beings. There's no doubt about it. But the devil does too. You know? And if you don't ascertain for yourself what is right, you could be deceived. And if you think you know you are smart enough to know what is right, then you are deceived. If a man thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is scriptural. Galatians chapter 6 verse 3. Would you like to show the Lord that you want to follow Him? If you do, would you please stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're 
We're just human. And we're faulty in many respects. We're very weak. We don't always know right from wrong, up from down. But we know you. You make no mistakes. And you've promised that if we acknowledged you, you would direct our path. You promised to instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. You've promised. And we're asking you to do it. Just do it. You know the people that are in this room. You know who it is that has that have stand stood up. You know who they are. This is a this is a commitment. This is a prayer in and of itself. We ask that you would guide us individually. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.